Ephesians chapter 1. Actually, we're in chapter 2 today. Look at that. We made it to another chapter. Chapter 2, page 1156. If you're unfamiliar with the location of Ephesians in the Bible, perhaps haven't been there recently, it's page 1156. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. God, only you are great. We are not great. Our church is not great. Our country is not great. Lord, there is nothing in this world that is great compared to You. You alone are awesome. You alone are exalted. God, Your name is great. And yet, despite the greatness and majesty of Your glory, Lord Jesus Christ, You humbled Yourself and became one of us. And as we just sang, was was born in a stall where animals sleep. What an awesome God You are. And so our prayer this morning in the light of Christmas, is that once again You would descend to us, that You would condescend, that You would meet us here. Lord, we are confused. We are tired. We have questions. We have doubts. Lord, we struggle with sin. Some of us have been run over by our sins this week and have been defeated. Lord, we have uh, hurts in our lives and pains. God, we need Your Spirit to fill us up because otherwise we'll be lifeless. And so we pray that this morning we might have that experience of Christmas again of Christ coming into our hearts and filling us up. Lord Jesus Christ, we desire this morning to be filled up with more of you and to meet with you. So we pray that you might meet with us because we know that as we open your word, you reveal yourself because Christ is known through his word. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we come with great expectation, like little kids opening up a Christmas presents, knowing that there's something awesome inside. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Sometimes, in order to show the um, beauty and the glory of uh, a diamond, a jeweler will take the diamond and he'll put it on a black piece of cloth, maybe a dark piece of velvet or something, because when you see the contrast between the black cloth and the diamond that's sitting on it, the diamond sort of comes to life and it sparkles because of that strong contrast. 
Well, this morning, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do in our text. He wants to contrast something for us. Uh, For those of you who may be joining us for the first time this Sunday, we're glad that you're here. Uh, We have been studying in the book of Ephesians since about September. We're going to be studying through Ephesians uh, throughout the year of 2003. And uh, we've been looking at the big, beautiful gem of our salvation in Christ. We've been looking at this great gem of what Christ has done for us, who we are in Jesus and what we have in Christ. You know, what is so great about the Christian life? Well, that's what we've been looking at. And if you remember where we've been, just to do a little recap, in uh, verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1, we looked at our spiritual blessings in Christ. Do you remember that? We went through enumerating those blessings one by one. It's kind of like Paul held up the, the gem of salvation of who we are and what we have in Christ And he slowly turned it around. And as it turned, we got to look at all the different facets and cuts of that gem. And then we just finished over Christmas, uh, the second section, which was chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, where Paul prayed that our eyes would be enlightened so that we might better understand what we have in Christ. He, He wanted us to see the gem more clearly. He was praying that God's Holy Spirit would give us one of those little Uh, eyepieces that jewelers wear so that we could really zoom in and understand even more what we have in Christ. Well, Paul still wants us to understand who we are and what we have in Christ. So he's going to take a different angle now. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he begins by contrasting. He takes that gem now and he places it against a black cloth. What is the black cloth? Well, it's us. He, he puts the, the brightness of the gem against who we were before Jesus. He reminds us of what we had and who we were before Christ by way of contrast. So today I want to look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So if you were feeling kind of tired after Christmas, this will be a pick-me-up. <clears throat> As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Who were we before we came to Jesus? We've been talking about who we are in Jesus, but it's good to go back and say, who was I before? Who is, who is a human being without Christ in their lives? Well, we have a lot of answers here. The first is this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The first thing we have to say is that a person without Christ, me before Christ, B.C., I was dead. Now, obviously, Paul is not talking about being physically dead here because he's speaking to living Christians at the time. And he says in verse 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So it's when, when the way I used to live was a dead way. So he's talking about deadness in a spiritual sense, that every human being, apart from Christ, is spiritually dead. Uh, if you think about it this way, Christ is life. Uh, God is life. Uh, but we are dead in transgressions and sins. Our sins are what cut us off from God. Sin is me saying, Uh, that I'm God. Sin is me saying, well, I'm going to do life how I want. I'm going to do religion how I want. I'm going to do it on my timetable according to my designs. And when I live that way, when I enter into that pattern of sin, I end up alienating myself from God. I, in a sense, entomb myself in sin, and, and I destroy myself. So death is the consequence of being separated from God. And as a result, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. 
So what does that mean, practically speaking, that we're dead in transgressions? Well, there's a lot of things. Heck, we could do a whole sermon series just on being dead in transgressions and sins. Boy, that'd be cheery, huh? Uh, <laughs> we'll do that one next Christmas. But, but really, what does it mean to be dead in transgressions and sins? Well, one of the things it means is that we are spiritually unresponsive to God. Because dead people, dead, the dead don't talk. What is it? Dead men tell no tales? Dead, dead people don't respond. Dead people can't answer you. Corpses can't respond to things you say. They can't hear. Added to our, our vocabulary in the last 30 years, it's the word seeker. You all know this word? Uh, seeker is someone who's not a Christian yet, but they're seeking. They're open to having spiritual conversations about Christ. Uh, they'll come to church with you if you invite them. Maybe you give them a book about Jesus, and they say, yeah, I'll read that. And so a seeker is someone who seems to be open. And in fact, there's a whole movement uh, within evangelical Christianity to sort of wake us up to seekers. Uh, when I was in college, in Wheaton College, I, for six months, attended Willow Creek Community Church in Illinois, which sort of started the whole seeker church movement. It was a great church. I mean, I was blessed. I grew in the Lord there. I sort of came back to Christ in, in a lot of ways in college through Willow Creek Community Church. But the idea is that, that it's a, a seeker-targeted church. They want to make Christ understandable to people. They don't want people to come into church and hear all, of these, all this jargon and all these rituals that are just so opaque and people go away saying, I have no idea what that meant. They want people to come into church and understand the gospel. And so that's sort of the contribution of the seeker movement. And, you know, as I was thinking about uh, seeker, the idea of a seeker in relationship to this text, I'd say at one level, yeah, there are seekers. I mean, obviously, from sort of a purely human perspective, we've all met people in life who are just hard as stone. You try to talk to them about Jesus, and it's like talking to a rock. And then there's other people in life you talk to about Christ, and they go, yeah, well, let me hear more about that. And, and they're open, and they want to discuss, and they're willing to, to sort of walk the path of Christianity with you a little bit to see where it leads. And so, yeah, in that sense, there are seekers. You know, obviously, there's some people who are more open than others, so it seems. But the question I want to ask is, at a spiritual and theological level, is there really such a thing as a seeker? Because how can dead people seek? Dead people are just dead. People don't seek the Lord. Romans chapter 3 says, There is none righteous one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There is none of us that seeks the Lord. But if there is anyone who seems to be showing signs of openness to Christ in a genuine way, and you can only tell if it's genuine down the road by watching the, the change in the life, if there is anyone who shows signs of that, it's because God is already touching their heart first. Because before we can seek God, God has to touch us. Because we are dead. God has to put the paddles on us and boom, you know, bring us back. Because otherwise we're lost, we're gone. God has to call us out of our graves before we can respond to him. You know, we just had this great Christmas Eve service. Were some of you here for Christmas Eve? It was, yeah, it was awesome. Woo, yeah, hi, I was too. Uh, it was great. Um, uh, and uh, I, I managed to preach three services. I don't know if I was going to be upright at the end of it. I felt fine and felt great. Uh, it was just a great time. Uh, I estimate that about 900 people came through the church, which was awesome. Because that was our goal. You know, we had three services and the goal was to really reach out to the community. And we sent out mailers to everyone in Hingham. Every house in Hingham got an invite. And I know you guys took all those mailers. We had a big stack of mailers, and they're pretty much all gone. And you took them out, and you were inviting people. And I know many people came up to me during the service and said, Oh, my, 
you know, my dentist is here. Oh, my, you know, my sister is here. I mean, so many different people. It was awesome. I mean, you guys really did this. And you were the ones who, you know, staffed the nursery. And you did this whole thing. It was amazing outreach. And yet at the same time, even as we're doing an outreach like that, it's kind of funny, we also recognize at the same time that there's absolutely nothing we can do to bring anyone to Christ. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. You preach and you pray and you reach out and you invite, recognizing that you're totally powerless to do anything. That unless God touches a heart, you know, with just 900 people in a service, and gee, wasn't that great? But only if God opens the heart will there be people who come to Christ because people are spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead. And I did not come to Christ because I figured it out. <laughs> no, no. The reason, only reason I became to Christ or became a minister was because God was kind to me and had mercy upon me and, and called me from death to life. Because if it had just been up to me, I would have kept going down the same path. People are spiritually dead without Christ. But wait, it gets worse. Verse 2. <laughs> sort of like a, 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 an anti-infomercial. But wait, it's worse. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live. So not only was I dead, but I was just part of the herd. I was going along with where everyone else was going. I was barreling along with the patterns of this world, and whatever was in vogue at the time, whatever was hip or popular or interesting, whatever everyone in the world said was good and normal, that's what I went along with. And so we, uh, we drank and we drugged, and we slept around, and we uh, brawled with the party crowd, and we acquired, and we maxed out credit cards, and we upgraded and purchased bigger and better with the uh, yuppie materialism crowd, and we squeezed pennies out of people and, and stabbed people in the back and did whatever we had to do to earn an extra dime with the, the sharky business crowd. And we played the power games with, with the power crowd, and we uh, kept track of all the latest fashions with the vanity crowd. You know, we, we just went along with whatever the world was doing. And we thought we were so enlightened and so sophisticated with the things that we believed. But, you know, it wasn't enlightened. It was just the pop doggerel that everybody was spouting. We were just saying what everyone else says. And we thought we were so enlightened, but we just were just going along with the herd. And, and that's, the, that's how I was before Christ. Wherever the world went, I just sort of you know, went along with it. And the world went over there, and I, I went over there. I remember being in Plymouth, uh, down in Plymouth Harbor uh, one day, and, and uh, there was a bunch of boats moored out there. And the wind was blowing, and the boats were all sort of facing the same direction. And then if the wind changed direction, the boats all went with it. I mean, that's how the world is. You know, the, the winds change, and everyone sort of adjusts, and everyone just does what... But we all do, and it's, it's kind of the way of the world. And this is how I was before Christ. I just went along with it. I never questioned it. There's a professor at uh, the seminary I attended named David Wells, and he defined worldliness this way. He said, worldliness is anything that a particular culture does to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's what worldliness is. And so when you try to do something righteous, try to follow God, it's like, what are you doing? Nobody does that. <laughs> well, come on, follow the, follow the lemmings. We're going off the cliff. You know, come with us. And so that's who I was before Christ. I just went along with whatever the world did. And if the world said it was cool, normal, in fashion, in vogue, I said, oh, okay. 
That's who I was before Christ. I was dead in my sins, and I was led around by the nose by the world. But wait, it gets worse. I follow the ways of this world, the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I also uh, followed a supernatural power. See, it's not just the world that's influencing me and trying to get me to, to go along with it, but there's, in a sense, a supernatural realm. There's this, the principalities and powers that we've read about. There are supernatural forces that, in a sense, energize and, and breathe life into the world system. It's not just the world. There's something else out there. There's evil. And the evil is not just kind of generalized evil. It has a personal center. It says right there uh, in verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And we know that this spirit is Satan or the devil. Uh, yeah, the devil. I mean, the Bible has always taught that there is a real devil. That the devil is not just a personification of evil, but there, there really is such an entity and you know, at times you can almost see him. You know, when horrible, awful tragedies like 9-11 take place, or like Columbine, or like the Holocaust. If you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. or, or read any books on the Holocaust, you know, the evil is so palpable that it's almost like it's alive. It's like evil has come. And, and we almost talk about it as if it's a being. Well, it is a being. There is a being behind the evil that men do that, that sort of energizes it and encourages it. It's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Of course, most of the time we don't see this being. He works behind the scenes. And his work is to sow disobedience among us. Um, so Satan, the, the power of the air, he's the one who whispers in our ears lies and temptations. As I sit in front of the television and the the ads come up telling me that I need to buy this and I need to look this way and I need to think this way. He's the guy who's sort of whispering in my ear, oh yeah, 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 that looks good. You know, he's the voiceover. Yeah, yeah, do that. Buy that. Be that. Act that way. And, and so there's this, this supernatural barrage that's always coming at me and talking to me and whispering to me. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis's book, um, uh, the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you've read that trilogy. He wrote another, uh, that seven-part series. He wrote a trilogy called the Space Trilogy. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's one of his great works, and a lot of people haven't read it. Uh, but the middle book is called Paralandra. And it's about this guy who goes to Venus. And Venus, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden Part 2. It's being replayed. And the, the character's name is Ransom, interestingly enough. And he's kind of a Christ figure. And there's an Eve there who's being tempted. She hasn't quite given in to sin yet. She's on the verge of being tempted. And along with Ransom, there's this other guy who lands on Venus who's the Satan character. And he's kind of possessed by the devil. And, and, so he's, and, and Satan is always tempting her to commit the sin. And he's always whispering to her. And, and Ransom is always arguing back and trying to say, no, no, don't think that way. Don't listen to him. But then Ransom eventually realizes that he has to go to sleep. And while he's sleeping, he says, you know, this Satan is going to keep whispering to her because the Satan guy, he never sleeps. He never gives up. He just follows her around. Whisper, whisper. I mean, that's the way of, of Satan. There's this power behind the world that is tempting and energizing and pushing us along. That's who I was before Christ. I was dead in my sins. I followed the ways of the world. I followed the, the promptings of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. 
And then verse 3, all of us lived them among, the, among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, but following its desires and thoughts. It's even worse. <laughs> Not only is the world pushing me along and Satan pushing me along, but I'm going along gladly because there's something within me that desires to turn against God and to sin against Him. All of us, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. So yes, the devil is real, but we can't say the devil made me do it because I wanted to do it. The reality is I wanted to go that way. Satan just kind of you know, fanned the flame that was already burning within me. The world pours on extra logs and Satan fans the flame, but the flame is mine. You know, sometimes, excuse me, sometimes you see in cartoons uh, there's a guy or a woman and she's wrestling with the decision, should I do this or should I do that? And there's a little angel on this shoulder, right? There's a little guy in a red suit on this shoulder, and they're both like arguing, yeah, do this, do that, you know, and the person's going, oh, which one should I listen to? But you know, that's not right, because in that picture, the impression is that the person is neutral, or maybe good, but confused. And so there's this battle to confuse and to, to corrupt this neutral person, but that's not how it is. We're not neutral. It's not like we're pure and clean as the wind-driven snow, and Satan comes along and ruins us. I mean, we're already wanting to go that way. He just goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Good, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's a good idea. You know, he just sort of encourages us along and whispers things in our ears along the path that we already want to go. Notice here this important word in verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Now, some of your Bibles, maybe if you're not reading the New International Version, have the word flesh there, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. That's actually, I think, a better translation. The Greek word is sarx, which means flesh. It could be like flesh on your body, which is kind of neutral. But it can also have the connotation, as it does here, of that part of me that is in rebellion against God. And, and that fleshly nature, that sinful nature, and hence the New International translation, sinful nature of the word sarks. In other words, there's something in me that resists God. I don't need the devil's help. <laughs> I don't need the world's help. I, I, have, I can do that myself to resist God. It's the uh, Lord of the Flies syndrome. You put a bunch of kids on a beautiful desert island and they all corrupt themselves. It's not society. It's us. It's within our own hearts. I was talking about this idea with uh, Pastor Seth the other day, a couple weeks ago, and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, it's not that the flesh is a part of us. They said, the flesh isn't a part of us. The flesh is us. It's like, yeah, that's right. It's me. It's not something else. As it says in the book of James, um, just turn there real quick, James chapter 1. James says, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So who was I before Jesus? I was dead. I was under the slavery of the world, under the slavery of the devil, under the slavery of my own flesh. And wait, it gets worse. Much, much worse. Here's the last line in verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That by my very nature, I drew forth, I called forth 
the anger and wrath of God upon myself? How should a holy, righteous, and just God respond to a bunch of people that He has created, to whom He has given everything, and yet they turn against Him? And they, they take the families He's given them and they corrupt the families. They take the bodies that He's given them and they corrupt their bodies. They take the society that He's given them and they corrupt society. They even take the relationship that He's given them with Himself and they turn away from that. How should God respond? And the answer is wrath. Wrath. Now, wrath is kind of a, a scary word and we probably don't like to think about God that way. It's not very popular today to say that God is a God of wrath. They, people like to say He's a God of love. And he is a God of love and wrath. You've got to put them together. He's a holy God. And when a holy God is spurned like this, His just, justifiable response is wrath and judgment. That is the only thing that I call forth from God. When God sees me as I am, apart from Christ, the only thing He responds with is wrath. Because that is what I deserve. And so this is who we are apart from Christ. We are dead, worldly, uh, under the influence of the devil, fleshly sinners doomed for judgment. I would encourage us all to honestly face this. To honestly face who we are apart from Christ. To stop deceiving ourselves. For me to stop saying that, well, you know, maybe I'm not that bad. Gee, I'm, I'm not that. No, 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 no. Look without blinking into the mirror of the Bible. See who you truly are apart from Christ. Let it soak in. Don't push it away. Don't rationalize it. Own it. And then once you've done that, once you really can say, yes, this is who I am apart from Christ, then read verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Nothing in yourselves, nothing in my own nature, but by God's grace, He's reached down and saved me because I realize who I am apart from Christ and now to see who I am in Christ. It's amazing. It doesn't matter who you are, no matter where you've gone in your life, where, what places you've been. You know, I, I talked to a guy at the Christmas Eve service. He came up afterwards and he said, I, I love that illustration about Jesus hanging out at the biker bars. He goes, because you know what? That's where I hang out. He goes, I can't wait to go back to the biker bars and tell my friends that. You know, and that's who we are. You know, we, we're, we're in all these places. Even that guy in the biker bar. If he would come to Christ, he would be forgiven and saved. No matter who we are, Christ can save us. Even the worst of the worst of us, whoever that may be. And so we as the church, I think, have to be bold and preach about the reality of sin. Churches tend to downplay that. They tend to, to dismiss sin because, well, you know, it's not popular. Who wants to stand up as a preacher and tell people they're a bunch of sinners? <laughs> who wants to go out to their friends and say, you know, you should come to Christ because in reality you're a sinner? and you're dead, and you're following the ways of the world, and blah, 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 and you're bound for wrath. I mean, who wants to say that to somebody? We have to be honest about sin. Notice I didn't say we have to be judgmental. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we have to be mean-spirited, nasty, holier-than-thou, or look down our nose at people. I'm just saying let's be honest. Honest. That's the key word. 
This is who you honestly are. This is who I honestly am. A sinner lost. But God saves sinners. Because when a church stops teaching about the reality of sin, it ends up actually diminishing the truth of the gospel. Because when I start saying, you know, I'm not so bad after all, and gee, I'm kind of a good person. I mean, I recycle regularly, and I have a little red, uh, you know, thing I wear on my shirt to show that I care about something. And, uh, you know, I gave to a charity, and gosh, you know, I'm not really that bad. I mean, what ends up happening is we diminish the cross. Because then why did Jesus die? I'm not really sure. (laughs) You know, we diminish salvation. Do I need to be saved? Well, not really. All dogs go to heaven, so, you know, what's, what's the big deal? But when I begin to see who I truly am, that no, 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 I am a sinner, and I am dead, and I follow the ways of the world, and I am under the influence of the evil one, and I follow my flesh, and I am bound for wrath, and everything natural within me rebels against God. And then I see that Christ has saved me, and that God loved me and died on the cross. Then the cross is exalted, and we are humbled, which is as it should be. And when I begin to see that God loved me so much that He sent His only Son to die for me when I'm here, then the cross is beautiful. So for the sake of the cross, for the glory of the Gospel, let us not shy away from this kind of hard teaching on sin. We don't have to be rude and preachy and arrogant, but we do have to be honest with ourselves first and then with people second and say, look, you're a sinner, you need Christ. Because that's what the gospel is here to do, to take care of our sin. Maybe you've heard of the, um, the great hymn writer John Newton. He was not always a Christian. Uh, at the time, a very profligate sinner, as they would say. He was actually a slave trader. Uh, and then God got a hold of him. The seeker found him. And the seeker saved him. And John Newton, that former uh, wild man and slave trader, became a pastor and a theologian. He wrote the greatest hymn of the Christian faith, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's autobiographical for John Newton. He knew where he had come from. And there's a story that near the end of his life, uh, he was quoted as saying, you know, when I was a young man, I thought I knew a lot, but now that I've grown older, I don't know that much. He says, but two things I do know, that I am a great sinner, And Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Is Christ calling you to Himself today? If so, I'd invite you just to cry out to Him and say, Lord, I am a sinner. Lord, I cannot save myself. But I thank You that in love and mercy... Christ died for me. And I accept Christ's death for the forgiveness of my sins. And Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that You would shine the the spotlight of Your Spirit on each one of us. And God, if there's anything right now that stands between us and You, Lord, would You highlight it so that we might repent of it and be healed, especially as we come to communion, Lord. I pray, Lord, if there's any lethargy in us, if there's any worldliness if we have given ourselves over to any fantasy or to any uh, worldly desire, God, I pray that you would purify our hearts and cause us to be a holy people. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you because you came to a bunch of people who are spiritually dead 
and you died for them, that we might be alive. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you because you came to a, a, a world that had gone astray and you took the sin of the world on your shoulders on the cross. We praise you, Lord, because you willingly humbled yourself underneath the whips and the nails of Satan. That you willingly allowed the prince of darkness to crucify you so that we might be saved from his power. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that even though we are slaves to the flesh, you took on human flesh and took our sin upon yourself so that we might be free from the power of the flesh. And Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that even though we were under wrath, you hung on the cross and took the full wrath of God upon yourself so that we might be pardoned and be free from condemnation. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we ascribe all of our salvation completely to your grace today. Nothing of ourselves. We praise you and worship you and love you. And as we come to communion now, Lord, I pray that you would make your sacrifice for us very vivid in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.